0: This week on The futurist.
1: Well, we used to try to understand how to solve a particular problem and then create an engineering project to solve it. The latest uh, success comes from we have no idea how it works. It's a big black box. We throw lots of big data at it and huge compute. And the more compute we throw at it, the better it does. It surprises us. It learns things we didn't actually expect it to learn. But it works, it works cross-domain, and uh, as I said, it surprises us with new skills from the same data.
0: Welcome back to The Futurist featuring myself, Brett King, and Robert Turchek. We're both futurists, but we like to interview the thought leaders, the thinkers, the sci-fi authors, the engineers, the practitioners, the super forecasters that are actually building the world of the future.
2: You know, one of the topics that comes up all the time when we're talking about the future is that some people are afraid of the future. The future can be scary. It can be a place that, that seems like a threat. Uh, to folks. And and candidly, news media doesn't help. Hollywood doesn't help. The stories that we tell ourselves in mass media usually frame the future as something that's vaguely scary or specifically very scary, uh, kind of a dystopian notion. And one of the mythologies that's been promoted a lot in the press and in popular media is this idea of Artificial intelligence as a threat, artificial intelligence running amok, uh, artificial intelligence stealing our jobs, and so forth. We've heard that again and again and again. The T-1000, I mean, yes. Yeah, that's all right. All the way back to 2001, uh, Space Odyssey. But but it's a theme that keeps coming up. There are dozens of books. If you look on, on Amazon, you'll see dozens of books about you know the, the war against the robots, or the robots are going to steal your job, and so forth. And um, while there's some validity to being concerned about that, I think we tend to lose sight of the fact that artificial intelligence can be an incredibly powerful tool if it's managed properly. So for today, continuing in our ongoing theme of practical futurism, I thought it'd be helpful to bring in someone who's actually focused on this very subject. Roman Yampolski is a professor of computer science at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. But that's not all. He's the author of a number of books, uh, a number of books focused on artificial intelligence and AI safety and security and the topic of superintelligence. And these are some of the things I definitely want to get into. So welcome to the show, Roman. It's great to have you here. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: Now today, Fantastic. one of the we'd love to get from you is uh, perspectives on where do things stand now? If you can just tell us about the state of the art in machine learning or machine intelligence.
1: So it's not static. It's changing very quickly. In fact, in the last month, probably about five or six papers came out, each one establishing new state of the art. Just this week, there was a paper claiming to produce a somewhat general artificial intelligence capable of hundreds of different uh, skills, uh, game playing, robot manipulation. Uh, So I don't know what the state of the art is. We either about to get into artificial general intelligence, so nothing will happen again for a couple of years.
2: You know, that that's a topic that comes up every few years. Um, they say that often AI is, is, a, is a subject that kind of has a permanent sunrise because topics arise, but they never quite come to fruition. What's your personal take on AGI? Do you think that's around the corner? Some people say it will never happen. What's the probability of AGI happening in the next 10 years?
1: Well, never is definitely an insane take on it. Uh, Maybe ten to twenty years is reasonable. Uh, more and more people are saying five to seven. That seems uh, very, very optimistic or pessimistic, depending on how you perceive it. Uh, but uh, if the rate of acceleration we've seen in the last month continues, then maybe because mm. prediction markets are saying now it's twenty thirty six, it was about twenty forty five a month ago. Right. So we shaved like seven years in a month.
2: And for those who aren't familiar with uh, AGI, can you give us this explanation of the difference between narrow AI um, and, and a general artificial intelligence?
1: Sure. So we used to try to make AI for a specific purpose. You had a spell checker, you had a chess playing program, you knew exactly what it's doing. It was good at one thing, maybe very good, but it had no other capabilities and you couldn't reuse that code for anything else. A uh, general is capable of doing good work in multiple domains. So just like a human being can drive a car and play chess and thousands of other things, uh, generally, I would also be able of uh, doing many things and learning new skills in multiple domains.
2: And, and would a general AI be something more like a human personality? Is that an aspect of it or is that a different dimension altogether?
1: Well, if by personality you mean uh, certain errors and bugs it makes while performing its work, yes, they would have definite personalities.
2: A
0: great question. Let me let me uh, let me um, just ask you about um, you know that that transition you talked about. So that you know we have the expert systems, uh, you know like the IBM um, Deep Blue uh, challenging Kasparov, uh, uh, um, Gary Kasparov in chess and so forth. But we've made enormous progress in recent times using machine learning. So what was the breakthrough? from an artificial intelligence perspective that took us from those very heavily code-based expert system type strategies to now machines that actually can take in information and learn you know backward propagation and all of those those capabilities what what was the turning point there
1: well we used to try to understand how to solve a particular problem and then create an engineering project to solve it so an expert system we would find a human, expert in a specific domain. There would be knowledge extraction process through interviews or something like that. And we would try to encode that into a machine. Very uh, time intensive, very difficult process. Uh, The latest uh, success comes from, we have no idea how it works. It's a big black box. We throw lots of big data at it and huge compute. And the more compute we throw at it, the better it does. It surprises us. It learns things we didn't actually expect it to learn. But it works, it works cross domain. And uh, as I said, it surprises us with new skills from the same data.
2: Let's talk about that black box notion because inside the black box uh, is the unknown. We're not quite sure how these systems actually arrive at their conclusions. What are some of the reasons we should be concerned about the black box? What are the fears there?
1: So I have a few papers published this year and last year about impossibility results uh, in AI safety and AI. And those include uh, unpredictability. We don't know what the system is going to do. We may have some idea about general direction it will take, but not specifics of decisions. Uh, Unexplainability. We have no idea how those decisions were made and the system is unable to explain it to us. Either the explanation is so complex, we would never get it or it's a simplification not very honest uh, kind of what we tell kids when they ask uncomfortable questions. Mm.
2: And how do no, we no, govern for that? Sorry, go how, do we, how do we evaluate the um, the system if we know that it's making uh you know let's say decisions based on something we can't comprehend uh, that's unknown to us um but yet we start to see outcomes that demonstrates some sort of bias or maybe, maybe an undesirable outcome. And there's plenty of examples of algorithmic bias already at work, leave alone artificial intelligence. Uh, so this is a known risk. How do we govern for that? How do we detect it? And then how do we correct for it?
1: So if you immediately detect problems, that's easy. The right. difficult problem is if it works beautifully, you see no problems and then you deploy it. And then it surprises you a month later, that's the difficult one. And we don't know how to do it. We have the same problem with humans, right? We do lie detectors, we do background checks, we do religion, morality, and then they betray you anyway. So it's the same neural network, just faster with more data.
0: So this is actually quite interesting, you know. Um, if you go, if you look back at AI theory, we get back to Rosenblatt and the perceptrons, and the effort to try and create these neural circuits that mimic um, human, the human brain function. Um, and so there's obviously been work in terms of neural chipsets and other things like that. But um, you know, are we at a, a point now where we recognise that the trajectory for machine learning, AGI, and AI in general? Is diverging from that human model of uh, you know uh, sort of the the neural network uh, piece, or are we still trying to essentially build machines that replicate the way humans think?
1: I think we learn a lot from neuroscience, and we borrow everything they discover, and it seems to improve uh, performance of those systems and. Uh, similarities are very strong, including in terms of errors and biases we observe. So not only do they perform as well or better, but they also fail in sort of predictable human ways a lot of times.
0: Uh, And so, um, you know, we are seeing, you know, do do you think that AI chipsets are going to have to support that sort of, um, you know, that sort of the software-based perceptron approach? Or uh, is it just about, as you said, compute power?
1: Well, there is advantage to having neuromorphic chips, which can learn and adapt as a native neural network, but it seems even without them, we're getting excellent performance on many domains.
2: Excellent. Tell us about your work on safety and security for artificial intelligence. This is a big area of focus for you. Tell us the things that you're concerned about and the methods you're using to explore that, learn about it, and maybe govern security in this space.
1: Right, so almost everyone in AI works on developing more capable systems, either in a specific domain or in general. Very few people as a percentage of uh, total number of researchers uh, try to understand what problems might we encounter with those systems, especially as they become more and more capable. Uh, Things I mentioned in terms of our desirable tools for controlling those systems would be being able to predict what they do, explain what they do, verify their software, verify overall architecture, goal systems. And for all those, they're already well-known established problems. Some are just impossible to accomplish. Others we don't know how to do yet. Maybe we'll discover how to do them in theory at least, maybe not in principle. So uh, what I do is I usually try to understand historical context. How do intelligent systems fail? I have a paper surveying historical accidents and trying to find trends in that. Everyone has trends showing exponential improvement, but there is a similar trend in terms of bugs and failures and impacts from those problems. Can we predict the type of a uh, bug we'll have with your service or product based on what you expect it will be doing? Well, yeah, most of the time we can. So anticipating problems and trying to see are there actually possibly some solutions for addressing them
0: one one of the things that is sort of a weakness globally in terms of AI right now is sort of clear regulation when it comes to ethics and, you know, those ba- a lot of those behavioural elements. I think part of this stems from the fact that, you know, when, when we are talking about artificial intelligence, um, you know, many governments think of this as a future problem rather than a today problem. Um, and we spend a lot of time debating whether AI is going to impact the workforce and things like that when we should be investing more time in helping human society transition to um, incorporating artificial intelligence in society, you know, when when you're having these conversations at a senior level of in government and so forth, how do you articulate that need to think about much sort of longer term implications of AI? And how do you guide, you know, organizations like this in terms of policy setting and, um, you know, absorbing artificial intelligence into society?
1: Well, it's not even obvious that governance would help. If we look at other technologies where politicians try to interfere, computer viruses, spam, simply making those things illegal didn't really solve anything. Uh, It may actually make things worse if you kind of limit what the good guys can do and the bad guys have to go to a different country to develop uh, unsafe, even more unsafe products. So even that is still research in terms of how do you govern advanced intelligence systems. For narrow AI, for predictable deterministic systems, yeah, you can have very specific uh, requirements. Okay, employment system, you cannot have racial bias. This is easy to check. We can look at the data. Okay, this is doable, but this is tool AI. This is something humans use in the office to make it easier. If we switch to general agent AI, then all those standard methods of testing and uh, checking no longer apply. And we are not uh, at the level where we can monitor life or evaluate performance of those systems.
2: Now, some people hearing that might say, well, then we ought not to pursue this because we don't even know how to anticipate the potential problems, let alone recognize or correct for the problems. So perhaps it would be better not to do it at all. What are some of the arguments for pursuing this, to continue to pursue it, continue to develop it?
1: Well, the benefits, if we do it right, if we get a friendly superintelligence, a tremendous economic benefit would be in trillions of dollars of physical cognitive labor, uh, scientific research, curing, all sorts of diseases, unknown unknowns in terms of benefits would be great. Uh, Also, you can't stop this. Uh, The financial incentives are so high, it's simply not meaningful to say, and now Google, Facebook, Apple all stop doing new research. Let's see what happens. It's just uh, another impossibility result in AI. You cannot ban it.
2: So in a way, it's similar then to cryptocurrency, where there are plenty of critics. And some people say we should ban cryptocurrency. But the proponents of cryptocurrency say, how can you stop it? It's already out there. Uh, You might stop it in one jurisdiction or one country. But that just means that innovation will divert to another location and continue. So you think it's a similar thing?
1: It's very similar and uh, you can actually see exact parallels a smart contract as it becomes more advanced is exactly ai safety problem how do you control something ahead of time not knowing how it's going to be used not knowing what sensory data it's relying on that's that's ai safety Mm
2: -hmm. today the the smart contracts are relatively primitive and that has something to do with the amount of compute power in the distributed computer and the blockchain um, but already we're starting to see a large number of DAOs, distributed autonomous organizations, decentralized organizations.
0: AI-based corporations, actually.
2: Right? That's where it's leading. That's what it seems to me. Uh, we spoke to Wolf Kahl just a couple of weeks ago on this topic, and he shared some thoughts about AI governance. Um, it's an interesting notion to have an AI corporation or you know, a cloud robot, if you will, that manages people. Um Roman, what's the prospect for that? Like, how? What timeline do you envision for a, a, a business being managed or business decisions being managed by an artificial intelligence?
1: Well, I have a paper about that legally, it's possible today. You can have corporate personhood and through that loophole grant uh, legal status to AI. So it may not be the smartest CEO, but you can definitely get it done today. You mentioned that uh, modern smart contracts are very primitive. But that doesn't stop them from failing every week. And if it's only a $10 million loss, we kind of go, that's nothing. Last week it was 600 million. So even if this primitive kind of bunch of if statement contract cannot be verified, what hope do we have for something which truly controls a lot of cyber infrastructure, the whole economy, military response? Uh, That's actually a very good uh, way to introduce people to the problems we are truly concerned about.
2: You just brought up a whole range of other possible scenarios, uh, you know, including the idea of robotic warfare. We're, we're kind of on the brink of that right now. We're seeing that happen right now in the conflict in Ukraine where there are uh, robotic systems or semi-autonomous systems being deployed. And this is where it starts to get very scary for people because we wonder, well, wait, if we start to go with full-on autonomous uh, military systems, what happens if those get out of control? Is that the kind of problem that you're concerned with? Are you focused on that at all?
1: It is another difficult uh, challenge, specifically malevolent by design intelligence, where you have, in addition to all the standard problems, bugs, uh, misaligned systems, you have malicious payload. The system is designed to kill people by by definition. So it's problematic, but it's, uh, I think, not as big of a challenge as uh, unexpected surprise failures in systems which actually impact billions of people in terms of just daily life, electrical grid, airline industry. So that would be even more impactful than a crazy drone just starting firing in the wrong direction.
2: Maybe people are unaware how broadly distributed this technology already is. Uh, I mentioned the electrical grid and other infrastructure, and of course, AI in, in financial transactions and in, in banking. Uh, can you give us a sort of state-of-the-art overview? Where are uh, Where is artificial intelligence deployed today in the economy?
1: You would think we would never be crazy enough to surrender control to machines, but we did it before we became even human-level intelligent. Most stock market trades are done by bots, something like 85 exactly. 90% probably, at least. Uh, almost everything is uh, automated to the point where you cannot manually take over. It's just the system is too complex, so you have to rely on it. We see it with uh, some uh, recent crashes of airplanes. Autopilot is too complex. No one fully exercised or understood all the code behind it. So the pilots have to kind of either trust it completely or try to fight control out of the hands of the autopilot. And we've seen accidents happen. So pretty much every industry today has a significant amount of software making decisions.
0: Roman, I'm I'm interested in how you got into artificial intelligence. What what inspired you to um you know invest your time and and um you know become an expert in this field? Because obviously, you know, you, you are one of the top guys in the space.
1: I was uh, very passionate about improving the world. I saw so a lot of benefit from this technology if we can get help again with scientific research, with engineering, I was not thinking about uh, side effects at the time. so I was very optimistic. I looked over my uh, statement uh, applying to PhD programs and I was like, that's so cute. Look at that guy. That's cool.
0: <laughs> when, when do you when, what's in your memory what's your first awareness of artificial intelligence or your first interaction with AI?
1: The video games uh, since i was yeah. a very young child that's that was a big part of my life and i was initially interested in designing games creating more interesting ai characters for them
2: well i think right now we should probably take a break you're listening to the futurists with brett king and me robert tersick and our guest today is dr roman Yampolsky. dr yampolski is an expert in artificial intelligence and just after this break we're going to get into the big topic of super intelligence Hi, welcome back to The Futurists. This week, Brett King and I are interviewing Dr. Roman Yampolsky, an expert in artificial intelligence and AI safety and security. Now, one of the things that you've focused on is this thing called the AI control problem. Roman, can you tell us a little bit about what is the control problem?
1: That's a great question. Uh, There is still some debate about what specifically it means. I have a paper where I try to formally define different types of control. And I arrived at four different types, one being direct control, where you just give orders to the robot. Very simple, uh, we all know how it fails. It's kind of a genie problem with wishes. You wish for something, then you go, it's terrible. You wish for that to be undone, and now you have one wish left and you're worried. Uh, the exact opposite of it is uh, ideal advisor, where the system is smarter than you, and knows better what you want, You don't have to wish for anything. It just takes care of things for you. You're not really in control, but you might be happy. And then there is two kind of hybrid where it's like it sort of knows what you want, but it still needs you to make orders, verify them, and so on. And for each one, there seems to be some level of problems. Either the orders backfire or you're just not in control anymore. You are pet in a zoo and there is a zookeeper and they know exactly what to feed you. So depending on how you want to see it, uh, it may be somewhat unsolvable.
2: So that's the AI control problem. But it doesn't sound like the problem has a great solution.
1: Uh, From what I see, it doesn't. And then I list all the ingredients a possible solution would have uh, from political science, economics, uh, mathematics, computer science, every subdomain you can think of. There are well-known proven impossibility results. In those fields. So no, we cannot all agree on a common voting procedure. No, there is not a way to you know, allocate resources fairly without bias and so on. So if all the ingredients are impossible, it's very unlikely that we can kind of mix them together and get this uh, possible solution.
2: Now, that seems to be kind of a risky scenario from my viewpoint, because what we know is there's a bit of a race happening, right? There's a kind of arms race in artificial intelligence Uh, Not just between private corporations that are putting resources into it, but also at a national level, Uh, because certain countries,
0: US, is an
2: example, right? That's right. Certain countries see this as a national priority: uh, artificial intelligence. And so, when you have an arms race going on, most people are focused on making advances, um, finding new things, you know, pushing innovation forward. And I think if you're a voice saying, "Well, hang on, slow down. We should double check. Let's put some control measures in place." you might find that you're a voice in the wilderness and not many people are listening to you. Do you have that experience or do you find that people are actually receptive to these questions about control of AI and safety?
1: Well, there are sort of two camps, right? Those who are already convinced and they would love to see progress put on some sort of standby moratorium, let us see what's going on, figure it out. And those who don't know any problems with the technology they develop, so they are trying to get their first as fast as they can. There is also an interesting variant and where people agree that there are problems, but still try to get there as fast as they can. And that one, I just cannot crack. Let's be on my human intelligence. You
0: know, when we look at China, they've had significant uh, progress because they've got such large data pools to call upon in respect to human behaviour for machine learning and, and things like that. Um, we're seeing them make significant progress in a- autonomous transportation and uh, uh, and so forth. Um, You know, what sort of advantage does China have in respect to their ability to seed machine learning capabilities and the fact that from a societal perspective, they seem much more um, interested in infusing artificial intelligence at a society level? How do you think that will play out in terms of China's economics over the next 20 or 30 years?
1: So they have an advantage, I think, in terms of less regulation and being more willing to experiment on people. So they'll deploy and get data without concern for privacy. Uh, It's definitely an advantage when you need more data. Uh, I don't think they are at the forefront in terms of innovative algorithms. They are very good at taking existing approach and scaling it, deploying it. And obviously, you can see from their economy, they are doing really well in all of those uh, approaches, but I don't think they are the first uh, in terms of deploying completely novel methods.
0: Uh, you know, and you're going to get, obviously, Chinese AIs that have been trained in China and you're going to get, uh, you know, US-based AIs from the tech giants here and so forth. Um, you know, uh, where where do you um, get the problems in terms of trying to take those models offshore? Or do you think that um, this is sort of going to disappear with global data models feeding this? Or, or do you get the, are you going to get regional and, and national flavours of AI that only tend to work, uh, you know? know in those in those geographies
1: well if you train on local data you're going to get local bias and local preferences and local common sense right so what is considered very standard in one country may be offensive or criminal in another and uh, we'll definitely see it initially again all of it until we get to general beyond human level performance with tools after that i don't think borders will make much of a difference for that
2: you know, on a related note, there's a concern when you look at this from outside of countries like China and the United States that are at the forefront of developing artificial intelligence. When you look at this from the perspective of the global South, there's a concern about a kind of data colonialism where data assets are being accumulated by countries in the global North. And those, are, those, those data assets are used to train artificial intelligence that is then unleashed on the countries in the South. And that's a form of of artificial intelligence imperialism, if you will. Do you see that as a possibility? Is that another kind of risk that we should be concerned with, this kind of data colonialism and AI imperialism?
1: There is a lot of what I would say current problems, Uh, algorithmic bias, technological unemployment, everything you just mentioned. There are great people working on it. I am not one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, My work is mostly about future systems and human level and beyond. Uh, not because those problems are not important, but because the impact from them is uh, limited. Maybe economic hardship, maybe something else, but each one of them is very unlikely to exterminate all of humanity. Whereas uh, with superintelligence, uh, it's a possibility. Existential risk is something I'm very concerned about. So that's what I concentrate on.
2: Well, since you bring up the topic, tell us what is superintelligence? Give us a definition there.
1: So it's a system projected to be better than any human in any domain or humanity as a collective. So it would be a better chess player, better driver, better artist. Essentially, it would dominate uh, in terms of its intelligence in all domains we're interested in and beyond that.
2: Okay, so we've seen over the course of the past 20 years, um, uh, machine intelligence systems or machine learning systems that could surpass humans in one dimension, in one domain one after another, um, but what you're now proposing is that that we might end up with an AI relatively soon, it sounds like, that can surpass human capacity in every domain. Is that what you're talking about when you say superintelligence?
1: Right, exactly, and specifically the domains of concern are science and engineering. It would be better at designing next generation of intelligent systems. So, so
0: is that is is that going to be, you know, do we do that on an aggregation basis, taking like, for example, you know, what Tesla's doing with full self-driving and you know what what um, Boeing is doing with uh, you know, or or these uh, you know pilotless drones are doing with you know f- for flying cars and and um, GPT three with natural language processing. Do we sort of take all of these individual competencies and aggregate it up, or do you work on a super intelligence as a, a, in, a as a unique approach to AI singularly?
1: I think aggregation doesn't work. It's very hard to add chess playing knowledge to car driving knowledge. So it's a single system trained to be generally competent. And we see it with the latest large models. They are pre-trained on a lot of different data. And then with a few examples, master new domains. So I think that's the approach. And I think that's what we see humans are capable of doing as well. We don't just glue another human so you can play chess now. We're going train right, the right. same guy to, to do that.
0: So who, who, who's working on, on the super intelligent frameworks? Well,
1: they you may know, be not obviously ex-
0: yourself, but...
1: I, I don't work on it. I'm trying to slow it down. Uh, obviously, not every company would call it that, but uh, in terms of what they actually do, DeepMind is definitely working on solving intelligence, Google company. Uh, OpenAI is another very big player, and everyone else is kind of trying to get into that space, but maybe a few steps behind.
2: What are some of the physical uh, infrastructure requirements for superintelligence? Because we know that even with the the large learning models like GPT-3, that there's a tremendous computational cost, that you need a lot of infrastructure just to run a, that's a relatively domain-specific model. But now we're talking about superintelligence, so I would imagine that you need a much bigger infrastructure to support it. Talk a little bit about the processing power, the compute power, the energy consumption.
1: Uh, Right. So there are estimates based on uh, estimated capacity of human brain. If we can get same level of computation, we expect same level of performance and actually somewhat more efficient because biological neurons are slow. So if we can get to that level, and that's what a lot of predictions uh, from Ray Kurzweil are based on. When will we get to human brain emulation capability, emulation for 8 billion brains? And that tells you, okay, 2023 is when we'll have enough compute to do it. It's also uh, possible that we'll find more efficient ways to train the same model. And there is some indication that that's happening. So more efficient in terms of just compute, in terms of electricity necessary. So it may actually be a much more reasonable process. Also, what really makes a difference is the difference between training it and deploying it. It may be expensive to train it. It may cost a trillion dollars, but then it's almost free to deploy it and you quickly decoup all that cost from actually using that super intelligent system.
2: Let's talk about data collection and data assets because one of the things that's quietly been happening over the past decade is uh, that we've been deploying sensors uh, and IoT all over the world in many hidden places. Uh, I think most people are unaware that when they walk around with a smartphone, they're carrying something that's loaded with sensors. And even this Apple Watch has about a dozen sensors on it and so, uh, in our daily lives, we're throwing off tremendous amounts of data smog, but that data doesn't just disappear into the ether. It's actually being collected by unseen systems. Uh, so, has there been a significant change now with the collection of data assets? Has that accelerated the learning process? Is that something that is helping drive this movement towards AGI?
1: I think there is at least understanding that that's a very valuable thing to have. It's not just a side effect you delete. It's probably the main product of most companies eventually. So there is definitely interest in preserving it, collecting it, and uh, even more interestingly, a lot of data which was previously safe and encrypted may become not encrypted with some breakthroughs in quantum computing and, again, more powerful intelligence. So we might have access to things you assumed were very private uh, in the future to learn about you specifically.
2: Tell us totally. a little bit more about quantum, if you don't mind, because this, yeah, is, a, sure. this is a burning topic, both Brett and I are keen on. Uh, you know, the, the, the great advances being made there right now. We've been tracking the progress of that. And, uh, you know, it's even deployed in some respects where there's tools we can start, developers can start to use APIs to, to develop in, in, uh, in quantum computing. And there are concerns that encryption models will be rendered irrelevant. Other people say, well, there'll be quantum encryption. So it's just a chess game. Uh, There'll be a new form. How do you see quantum computing affecting artificial intelligence and perhaps accelerating it?
1: So it may help us train systems quicker, but it's also possible we don't need quantum computing, we could get there with standard Van Neumann architecture. I think a lot more impact would be on cryptography and cryptocurrency specifically, and privacy of existing communications. So switching to uh, quantum encryption may help in the future, but it doesn't help you preserve the last 30 years of your communications, purchasing history, and so on. And that's where the danger is. Uh, we're starting to see foreign governments try to acquire even encrypted data exactly for this reason. Later on we'll be able to uh, decrypt it and uh, get access to all the secrets. So uh, And
2: so that encrypted data from the past, as you say the last 30 years, that might be useful in training an AI. Then once it's decrypted using quantum techniques, uh, that might be a basis for training an AI uh, and, and bringing it up to speed.
1: It may be another source of interesting private information about most humans, which can be used for some additional manipulation. Mm. But quantum itself,
0: you don't feel it has a significant input into the development of AI as we think about it today?
1: It may. We don't have advanced enough quantum computers yet. It seems that human brain is probably not relying heavily on quantum effects, and all we want is to get to this human level of generality, and then it will kind of self-improve enough to get us to any level of performance feasible. So
0: this brings us to the point of consciousness, really, right? Is that, um, you know, there's obviously talk about the quantum mind and and how consciousness might work at a subatomic level and things like that. Um, But when we talk about consciousness from an AI perspective, a lot of the AI that we're talking about now is mimicking human behavior because it's learned that through machine learning. But do you think you know machines that you know and, and particularly super intelligent machines that you you you've studied and researched uh, will they be conscious in the same way we think of human consciousness or are we talking about effectively an alien consciousness here a, a different form of thinking and thought processing
1: so unless we think humans have some magical components uh, beyond physical soul or something like that then obviously any emulation of human brain human as a whole would have same properties. so I would be surprised if that was not copied over and yes just like you would have super intelligence you would have super consciousness system capable of experiencing something much more complex uh, maybe from different sensory modalities. So this quality of humans have this stays good, this looks good that system can have something for source code or this compiles beautifully I don't know. Uh, seems like it's likely. Uh, I have a paper where I try to understand what those um, qualia are and I kind of map them on bugs and errors in your computational process. So what makes you unique and special is how your hardware and your algorithms combine to interpret streams of data you're getting from the world. And that's your experience. That's uh, those unique bugs is what differentiates you and me. And since we know AI definitely has bugs and sensory problems. They may already be uh, at some very primitive level experiencing those uh, unique qualia as well.
0: Roman, um, what I'd like you to do right now is sort of like you know take us on a journey into the future, thirty to fifty years out, um, where where superintelligence is in fact integrated into our society. How do you think we will live with AI? Will we f- need, need to compete with AI like Elon suggests, you know, enhancing our, you know, augmenting our own intelligence so that we can uh, keep up with these machines? Or do you see that society will, um, you know, adapt to having superintelligence, uh, you know, embedded in our world?
1: Well, I think the moment we get superintelligence, the main character in that movie changes. We are no longer the main character. We don't really have much to contribute. So now the question is, will the superintelligence decide to keep us around for some reason? And what that reason might be and in what state it would keep us around at all? It may happen much sooner than 50 years from now it can happen. And I think there is AI AICountdown.com or something like that, and it's like at six years right now. So it may be a much sooner... Uh, situation. Uh, I don't see what an unaugmented human has to contribute. And if we do upload ourselves, speed it up, uh, integrate with machines, I don't see what we contribute. We become a biological bottleneck and it makes sense to remove us from this hybrid system because, again, we don't have much to offer. I don't keep my old iPhone taped to my head because maybe it's still useful for something. I just remove it because it Really is just not necessary. So, how,
0: how do you think we incentivize these super intelligences then to keep us around?
1: I don't have that answer. I don't know what super intelligences are into, what they prefer, what their
0: motivations will be. Uh... A
1: lot of uh, safety and security research right now is to shape that motivation into having a bias towards liking humans. We're trying to remove all sorts of race bias, gender bias, but we want to instill this like squishy biological humans bias treat them well. And we don't know how to do it properly because all those definitions, what is a human, what does it mean to treat them well, are not well-defined.
2: This reminds me of Isaac Asimov's rule, three rules of robots. Uh, turns out he was—he had some foresight. In the remaining time, talk to us a little bit about methodology, because we're always interested in giving our listeners some practical advice about how to think about the future. One of the things I, I understand from listening to you is that A lot of the work that you do involves writing papers where you're processing a lot of information and then you formulate it into a constructive narrative um, that helps people, might help other people understand it. But one other thing I noticed that you've done is that you collaborate. Um, And in your book on AI safety and security, you collaborated with 47 different researchers to create that big book. Uh, So talk about the collaboration process Because I think some of the people listening might think that you work in isolation, that you're not necessarily collaborating across disciplines.
1: No, it's definitely a team effort. A single person can never accomplish much uh, in science, uh, at least in terms of deploying ideas. Uh, There is uh, a lot of different chapters. It's an edited book. And I tried to get kind of half and half. Half of the book is very big names, famous people, superstars who at any point in history were concerned with that topic. So, from the first paper on singularity to Kurzweil's predictions about superintelligence, uh, I try to kind of bring out their concerns. Uh, they were independent chapters, they didn't collaborate in a sense of agreeing on what to say, but they all seem to express that we are likely to hit this novel level of performance. And that may not be all pure good. And then the second part of the book is kind of younger researchers, not super famous names maybe yet, who are proposing different technical solutions to those problems. And again, they're looking at very different subsets. Some looking at uh, safety of industrial robots. Others are interested in social media manipulation by machines. So uh, again, very diverse. I tried to do more in terms of covering different areas, just to show those who are not convinced yet that it's a legitimate area of research. There is a lot of open problems and impact is cross domain. It's not just computer science. There are chapters in economics, chapters in philosophy. So it's definitely something worth looking at if you have not been explored exploring this area of investigation.
2: And one of the interesting things I noticed when I was looking at Amazon um, for your book on AI safety and security is the reviews talk about how practical this book is. Uh, It might seem entirely theoretical the way we've described it. Um, Many of the folks who've written reviews are working on artificial intelligence. They're doing artificial intelligence research and deployment, and they have your book handy and they say they make more reference to that particular volume than any other book on their bookshelf. So that's quite a nice kind of compliment to get. Yeah, I think from the Amazon reviewers who can be quite harsh, as we all know. Well, this has been an interesting conversation. Roman Jampolsky, thank you very kindly for taking the time to share with us your perspectives on artificial intelligence and the looming superintelligence. I was not aware that we were moving that quickly towards this uh, scenario. So it's exciting and a little bit scary to hear about it. Thank you very much for joining us on The Futurist. This has been a pleasure chatting with you.
1: Thanks for inviting me. We should do it again in a few years, see how wrong I got it.
2: Yeah. yeah well, you know, well, how right you did. Dr.
0: Yampolsky, how, how do people find out more about um, your work on superintelligence and, and how how can they follow you?
1: They can follow me on Twitter. They can follow me on Facebook. Don't follow me home. They only-
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's your Twitter ID?
1: I'm a Roman Yam, Y-A-M. If you Fantastic. Google my name, yeah. it shows up. No, we'll make well, sure to tweet that out. All my papers in Google Scholar you can download for free.
0: Fantastic. Well, we really appreciate you joining us and uh, thank you for lending your expertise. It was a very detailed and, and fascinating conversation. You're listening to The Futurist with myself and Robert Turcek. We just interviewed Dr. Roman Jampolsky on uh, superintelligence and a whole range of things. If you like this uh, uh, topic or you like this interview, um, you know, please share it and please share with us what you'd like to cover next on The Futurist, who you'd like us to talk to about uh, building uh, you know, a better Future for Humanity. And don't forget to leave a review um, of the podcast on your favorite podcast channel where you downloaded it. But for now, um, make sure to keep listening and we'll be back with you next week. But until then, we'll see you in
2: the the future. future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.